David Bach came up with the latte factor and Robert Kiyosaki had the rich dad, poor dad concept, Susie Orman empowered women. So they, they, they had, they, they came up with ways to present the information in a very unique, compelling, um, informative and entertaining fashion that made it different than the next personal finance book, which theoretically might have been offering you almost the exact same advice. I'm Eric Schwartzman, author of The Digital Pivot, and this is the Earned Media Podcast. David Ratner has over 25 years experience in book publicity, thought leadership, and publishing industry consulting. He is a former president of one of the country's largest book public relations agencies, where he worked with leading publishers and hundreds of best-selling authors uh, from all genres. Uh, today, most of David's clients are in the business space and he helps them utilize their books to grow their revenue and client base. Uh, he's been a featured speaker at a number of publishing conferences and is well-respected for his knowledge of the industry. David, welcome. Hey, Eric, thanks so much for having me here and uh, for the kind intro, appreciate it. I am excited to have you here because, as you know, I have a book coming out. I do. I do. So I have a ton I can learn from you. Uh, and today, we're going to dive into the business of marketing and publicizing books, sure. audiobooks and ebooks. And we're going to do it in three acts. We'll start with a discussion about your work publicizing the books of Rudolph Giuliani, Michael Lewis, Larry King, and others and uh, talk about your experience running a big agency. Then we'll take a look at how book PR works, the inner workings, the mechanics of the process, how much it costs, and how to hack the New York Times bestseller list. And finally, we'll wrap it up with a discussion about how business professionals who are not authors use businesses, use books to grow their business. Uh, this is the Earned Media Podcast. Stay with us. Act one, the business of public relations for books. We're talking to David Ratner, who has been a book publicist for 25 years and has worked with some of the biggest authors in the world. Um, starting with uh, Rudolph Giuliani, right? You were Rudy Giuliani's publicist. I worked with him in, in uh, concert with some other folks, especially his publisher, uh, a number of years ago, uh, right after 9-11, he had actually published a book called Leadership. And uh, I was fortunate at that time uh, to spend a significant amount of time with him, um, you know, helping to you know, publicize the book and, and uh, some of the initiatives that uh, he was involved with at that time, for sure. And, and what was that like? I mean, I imagine you got any, you were probably just saying no. Yeah, it's uh, it's a wonderful time when you have an author where literally you can cherry pick what you want to do, when you want to do it, uh, for how long you want to do it, etc. Uh, look, the the Rudy Giuliani uh, that I knew and spent time with that you know many years ago, maybe not the same person that he is today. At least my perception is a little bit different. But at the time, right after nine eleven, he was one of, if not the biggest presence in the United States. Um, 
you know, sort of as a voice for the country after 9-11. And it was pretty amazing to spend some time around him during that time. His presence was awesome. Uh, truly just commanded respect uh, from everyone uh, that was around him. And um, while people were certainly deferential, he was always open to conversations and ideas. And, and so it was, um, you know, I, I felt privileged at that time uh, to be able to spend some time with him and be part of what he was doing. What was the name of that book and how did it do? Um, so his book was called Leadership and um, it was a New York Times bestseller um, and deservedly so. Immediately, uh, like immediately, yeah. Again, you have to remember the timing for Rudy was unbelievable in terms of having a book come out. It would, it obviously, it was coincidental. It, it wasn't intentional that it was coming out, you know, post nine eleven. But uh, if you do remember, um, just what a presence he was post nine eleven. Um, he was kind of America's sweetheart at that time, uh, and and so. So you also, I'm a huge fan of Michael Lewis because yep. he does such a great job taking these sort of subjects that you wouldn't think are going to be interesting and making them really dramatic and compelling. Right. Which of his books did you work on? So um, did a little bit of uh, work on Moneyball and a little bit of work on The Big Short. And what you just described is the brilliance of Michael Lewis and other great writers but truly someone who can take something that may not be in your wheelhouse of interest, but you spend a little time either listening to him talk about it or reading the book uh, or even subsequently watching a movie uh, about it. And it really sucks you in. And, and he's just a brilliant guy. I had the, you know, I was able to go to lunch once or twice with him and just, you just kind of sit and listen and take it all in. I've got one of my best friends in the world has uh, grew a very strong relationship with him because he's been in a couple of, of uh, Michael's books and, and um, it's, uh, he's just a brilliant, brilliant writer. When, when you think about, you know, the types of media that are available to authors of that level, right? You can book them yep. on television. You can book them on radio. You can get them print coverage in national dailies, right. or, you know, major monthly publications, or you can do online stories as well. Right. Of those four, which one tends to sell the most books? Well, it's, it's a great question. I mean, look, when you can play at the A level, which Michael Lewis can play at, when you can get on 60 Minutes, when you can get on a morning show, Michael lives in the financial world as well. And so be featured on any and every program on CNBC. That's truly, truly powerful. You know, when you're Bruce Springsteen and you're releasing a book, you, again, you're, you're building what I would call a top-down campaign where you know you can do 60 minutes, a morning show, a, a, night, uh, a nighttime talk show, Jimmy Kimmel, or someone along those lines. That's really where you're going to get the most, a big New York Times feature, you know, things along those lines. You know, 15 years ago, 10 years ago, it was Oprah, right? I mean, Oprah was the biggest guarantee there was. It's a little bit, there's, there, there are less of those guarantees today. It's really a more complex puzzle, which we'll probably get into at some point. But when th those A-list hits um, are, are really the biggest drivers for sales, for sure. You know, it's interesting because when I'm watching television or consuming any sort of electronic media, podcast or radio or over-the-top programming, anything, you know, the likelihood that I'm going to remember what I heard and buy it, to, for me, is a lot slimmer 
than if I'm reading an online article and there's a link. Right. And so I, my, my assumption would be that, uh, you know, a hit in the guardian would be better than 60 minutes just because, I mean, I think they've got half a billion uniques a month now, right? But that's well, not look, the case, right? Well, it, it's, it, it is and it's not because bear in mind, if you see Michael Lewis on 60 minutes, you're going to see him somewhere else also, right? You're going to get for a, a book like that, you're going to get multiple exposures to that person. So it's going to be a lot easier to remember that person and and it becomes a destination buy for you like you you know you want it so you're gonna go get it uh you're not gonna forget it uh if it's at the michael lewis or springsteen those kinds of levels for other people though yes i I do think that you know digital coverage is huge and and that's where a lot of the coverage comes today and having those links that quick quick access is really valuable as, as well but you, you think about it, so that, let's say Bruce Springsteen does Jimmy Fallon's show, right? That's great. That's the one exposure. But then it's going to be picked up by every local news affiliate in the country on the day of the release and say, Bruce Springsteen just came out with a new book. And, you know, he was on, and they're going to run it on your local ABC affiliate or your local NBC affiliate. And then you're going to read about it in People Magazine or in the USA Today or Wall Street Journal or your local paper. And so typically with those big books, like President Obama's book that is out there right now and his wife's book that are out there, you can't miss them almost. And so that's why I think those hits have, have huge impact. Yeah. So, you know, when I, I, I started in PR many years ago and uh, learned that really you want to start with the most influential outlet you can break in because you can get a snowball effect going, but, but the snowball doesn't roll up the hill. It only rolls down in the media game. You know, you got to start, at the most influential game that you can. So I guess that's what you're saying. With these guys, you start at the top, yep. you create, you, you, you engineer, you know, eight or nine news breaks, and then it's a feeding frenzy. That's right. Right. I mean, look, that's only the case for probably two to three percent of books that get released, maybe even less than that. Most of them are what I would call a bottom-up campaign where you really have to, you know, generate more broad-based coverage to try to get to that pinnacle. Now, you said earlier, and I, I don't want to forget to come back to this, so sure. let's just cover it now. You said, you know, when you're talking about media, you said it's become a lot more complicated now. Yes. What did Absolutely. you mean? Well, know? if you think about how much media has diversified, you know, 15 years ago, there was no digital media, right, before we had the internet. And so, you know, and, and there were far less, far fewer television channels. Podcasts didn't exist. So media has become so watered down in some ways. There are so many outlets to go to. So it, there are very few, those A-listers that maintain the same level of influence that they once had. And people, you know, people don't read newspapers anymore. They get their information online. There's just so many different sources of information out there. And, and that relates to books. It is much harder to sell books today because anything you're writing about, if somebody wants a three-minute summation on it or a five-minute summation on it, they can look it up online, right? If you're, if you're writing a personal finance book today, that's great. But if you Google personal finance or personal finance tips, there's probably two million entries that come up now. And so people can get information in so many different places that it, it, it becomes watered down and media is a part of that for sure. Um, I, I want to 
dive deeper into that. But first, I just want to, I, I know you worked with uh, Stephanie Seymour. Yeah, I did. The supermodel. Yes. Yeah. And well, what book did you do for her? It was, she wrote a dummies book, a modeling for dummies book. And, and you know, what she was, she's a perfect example of, you know, and, and I know we, we had talked about how challenging sometimes these people can or, or are not to work with. What I've found in many cases is it's not the person themselves. It's those that are around them who are, are, are difficult. And when I say difficult, I don't mean it in a in necessarily in a negative context, right? They, they are the keepers at the gate, right? They are there to protect the person that they are working with. But, you know, when we, for instance, we were doing a TV satellite tour with her and we were given a list of very specific foods that she needed to have there and she would only eat this and eat that. And I, I just remember being in a break and at one point and, and saying to her, look, you know, are you hungry? We have X, Y, and Z here for you that we brought in from these different places. And she said, yeah, I, I just want three cheeseburgers from a place down the street that she loved. And it was like, you, you know, you spend all this time preparing and getting all these sort of, and then this beautiful woman who you think is a supermodel, who's not, you know, is super careful about everything. She wanted three cheeseburgers from a place down the street. So I, it was, it was, it was great. She, she was, she was very sweet. What are the biggest challenges of handling PR for well-known authors and personalities? You know, I, I think it's, it's the, A, it's sometimes the people around them. It's trying to get answers sometimes. And I think B, it's, it's the demands on their time, right? So they don't look, if, when you're promoting your book, Eric, you're going to talk to most people who are, won't want to talk to you in, in a certain sense. Whereas these high level people can only commit a couple of days or maybe a week at most and so you have to say no to a lot of places that are really interested. And, and so it's, it's kind of just designing the right schedule, um, you know, for them that, that fits what they're looking to do and what you have available to you, um, you know, from them, you know, with it. But again, most, I've worked with a lot of celebrities over the years in different ways. Most of them from a personality perspective are, have been great. Um, you know, and, and uh, again, sometimes it's the people around them that make it more of the challenge. Well, listeners of this podcast will know that I talk to a lot of authors around uh, climate change. I've, I've spoken to David Pogue and Michael Mann and mm-hmm. uh, Naomi Oreskes, who have all written books about climate change. And, uh, you know, I tried to get Bill Gates, who has a book now about climate change. And I want to just to break it to my listeners. I did get the formal uh, um, rejection letter from his people. So I regret to say Bill Gates will not be coming on this podcast, uh, at least not this time around. Well, I take the positive out of it that you got a response because a lot of times you don't. (laughs) So you can at least say that. Is there anything I could have done to have gotten him to say yes? In, in all candor, probably not at this point. I mean, again, if you think about the demands on Bill Gates and his time and how many Eric Schwartzmans there are out there who would love access to him, um, it's, you know, he's going to be very selective about what he does. Um, and it's got nothing to do with you or the per- the next person who wants him. It, it does in terms of, you know, size of it does have something to do with me. I'm not Fareed Zakaria. Right, right, right. And so that's with with his limited time, you know, he's going to select a few 
places to go and or people to talk to. And, and By the way, just to note to our listeners, Fred Zakaria has not declined yet. They're still considering. Right. Um, okay, it's got to be a lot easier to do PR for a Michael Lewis or a Larry King than it is for a relatively unknown author. Correct. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, so what, what is the best way for new authors to get earned media coverage for nonfiction books? For nonfiction books. It's really to um, have a unique selling proposition aimed at your target audience, right? And it's so to, to, to bring something to the table that is different than what you're hearing from everybody else, or if it's not different, at least phrasing it differently, like delivering the message. So I go back to the, the example of personal finance authors, for instance, in the end, most of them tell you the same thing, right? To pay yourself first and all this, but David Bach came up with the latte factor and Robert Kiyosaki had the rich dad, poor dad concept, Susie Orman empowered women. So they, they had, they, they came up with ways to present the information in a very unique, compelling, um, informative and entertaining fashion that made it different than the next personal finance book, which theoretically might have been offering you almost the exact same advice. And is that enough? Not always. I mean, look, today it's, it's uh, so much of it is about, well, look, if you're doing your own PR versus working with an agency or an individual who has contacts in certain places that are going to get responses much quicker. Uh, but today, like in terms of, you know, earning media, it's, it is, it's really being able to provide something that is compelling. And you have to understand as an author, especially in the nonfiction space, these outlets that are having you on, whether they're having you write an article for them, whether you're doing a television interview, a radio interview, a podcast interview, et cetera, they're not having you on or letting you contribute because they want to help you sell you know, your book. They're interested in having you on because you have something to bring to the table that their audience may be interested in. And so it's really important to keep that in mind. If you do the podcast and you have a, they'll talk about your book or a radio show, they'll talk about your book, they'll mention your book. If you write an author article in your byline, in your bio, you'll be able to mention that you're, you know, authored this book and put a link to the Amazon site or a link to your personal website. So you'll, you're able to promote the book itself, but nobody wants an article that says in my book, in my book, in my book, yeah, because that's just not compelling and interesting how to hire the right book publicist, how much book PR costs, and hacking the New York Times bestseller list with 25-year book PR veteran David Ratner when we return. Act two, public relations is a mystery to so many and book PR an even bigger mystery than that. In this act, we're going to talk about the inner workings of an effective book PR campaign with David Ratner, book publicist to Rudolph Giuliani and uh, Michael Lewis and many others. David, if a first-time author needs a publicist to promote their book, yep. where should they go to find them? So I think first and foremost, their network, right? Do they know other people who have written books, who have had successful engagements with publicists um, because I always believe in word of mouth and, and, you know, getting resources from people that you trust most. Um, you know, second, you can do some searching online for sure. Um, 
And then you really want to look for people who have familiarity with your space. Um, you know, for instance, so if you're a business book author, you want to work with a publicist and, and, or a group of people who have experience in that space um, and, and, and can, you know, provide you references and sample campaigns and any of those kinds of things to put you in a comfort zone. Um, so, you know, do your due diligence. Don't say, I say, I always say, don't say yes to the first person. But you don't have to talk to 15 either, because in the end, a lot of us, we do the same thing. There's a lot of us out there and you can make the decision a lot more difficult than it needs to be also. Um, and, and a lot of it becomes, you know, as long as you trust the person, they, they show well, then it becomes a gut instinct thing. Is this, a, is this a person I would prefer to work with, to succeed with or potentially even fail with based on a, the fact that I trust what they're telling me and that they have my best interests at hand? Um, you know, I, I always in, in my business. I am very uh, keen on transparency. I, I don't ever want to set authors up for false hope. Uh, when they start to ask me about numbers, how many books will I sell? I often tell them like, go into this with a mindset, you might not sell any. So, you know, and it's really important for me, like when I work with clients to get an understanding of what their goals are and, and to make sure that what we provide is in alignment with their goals. Um, you know, if they are coming to me with the expectation that, just based on the publicity work that we do, we're going to sell X number of books. You know, it's, it's book sales is completely subjective. We have no idea. We could run two identical campaigns, one that could sell lots of books and one, that, you know, doesn't. So it's if, if someone has a, uh, maybe a nonfiction book, that's uh, a tech book. Mm -hmm. um, are they better off with a general book publicist or with a tech publicist? Ideally, if they can find a tech publicist, because tech books are going to succeed more with people who are uh, inclined to buy books on the tech space. And so someone who has either business or tech experience is ideally going to have a stronger network of contacts in the targeted audience space. Got it. Now, um, what advice would you have for uh, authors who are interviewing book publicists, what specific questions should they ask? So I would ask them for realistic expectations. You know, what do you think you can do with this book? What do you think the results might be like? I wouldn't ask them to guarantee things because that's a hard thing to do. Um, I would make sure that they have a clear understanding of your goals um, I would certainly ask them for references uh, to get an idea of what an experience working with you, you know, with that publicist, what that might look like, and maybe even get some results from some of those people that you talk to. Uh, I would ask them what challenges they expect to face. You know, what, what, what are the challenges that, that we should face out there, that, that we're going to face out there together? And really dig in to make sure you feel like you're dealing with someone who is giving you honest answers and not just chasing a client. Um, I always say like for me again, and I don't want to break, but I work with a, a, a partnership mentality, not a vendorship mentality. I want to make, you know, if we work for a four month campaign and we get to the end of four months and I kind of look at it and say, well, we, we, we had a nice campaign here, but we should have gotten a little more. We're going to work a little bit more for you to make sure you get value for the dollars that you spend. There's lots of people like me out there. And I think that's what you want to try to work towards finding. Uh, versus the people who your campaign ends on March 31st, we will not do anything after that day. You know, I, I just don't operate that way. And I think the good publicists who are in the space out there 
who work with that same mentality. There are a lot of us. So let's role play this for a minute because I have a book coming out. Yep. Um, let's say you're my publicist. Yep. And it's our it's our client kickoff meeting. Uh, what is the process for publicizing my book? How how is it going to work? So first things that we're going to do is we're we're, we're going to do a little bit more of a discovery. Okay. So you've got your book. We want to you know we want to learn more about your business practices. We, we talk about your goals. Okay. We want to get a better understanding of your goals. Then we want to talk about who we're trying to reach, right? And and there are oftentimes the book buyer could be very different than the person who can hire you, right? I work with high-level consultants where who have terrific advice for readers, but a certain percentage of those readers could never hire the consultant because they don't have the resources to do so, or it's not appropriate to do so. So we kind of do an evaluation of the different audiences and what messages are going to be most germane to those audiences. And then from there, we would then develop databases for different audiences based on different pitches. So I always like to create what I call pitches and niches. So making sure that the pitches that we make are very specific to the media outlet that we are targeting versus trying to have a one size fits all press release that you're pitching, you know, to leadership people and HR people and, and strategy people and, and such. So I think it's really important to uh, understand who we're trying to reach and, and then, you know, working with you on, um, you know, are there idea generation, right? So much of the, the book PR world is based on guest articles and guest contributions. And so, um, instead of waiting for the outlet to come back and say, Hey, can he write about this? Or can he write about that? Being able to present four or five article ideas to them that you could bring to the table. It's okay if they come back and say, well, we're not interested in these, but would he be able to write about X? And that's fine. And, and we work to see if you can do that. But a good publicist is also going to help you strategize. And then once you have um, sort of that strategy in place, it's implementing, it's us getting on the phones, you know, sending out emails, reaching out to these target media with these targeted pitches to try to create opportunities for you. So when you're shopping uh, guest, guest bylines or excerpts, um, you're actually going to show up with four or five. You're not going to say, hey, here's the one we think is right for you. So we, sometimes it's the one that we think is right for them. Sometimes it's, if you know, sometimes if it's a leadership topic and we have three or four different articles that would fit there, we might present, we don't hand them all of the articles. Typically we'll hand them, um, you know, a, a headline and a couple lines about what that article would be. Right. Um, so so yeah, they're not necessarily written. Correct. I but mean, it's always be. great, but we do like to have, so what we've learned, you know, is we definitely like to have some written content in advance, because what it does is it accelerates the process, right? Because if outlet SX says, yes, we want this article and you already have that article, well, you can send it to them. It gets in the queue immediately. If you present it, they don't have that article. Then the author has to write it. It's got to go through an editorial process. And it could be 10 days later that it's getting submitted, depending on the author and their availability to write these articles and how good of a writer they are and all these kinds of things. So you know, in our world, the way we work, if you write it, we will find a home for it. We'll clean it up. We'll make sure it gets into really good shape and, and content is king. And so if, if you provide us content, we'll find homes for it. So there's never enough content, uh, at least for us, the way we operate. So having some pre-written in advance is definitely beneficial because it does accelerate the process. And what it also does is gives a good publicist 
the opportunity to repurpose something, right? So you may have written an article, got accepted somewhere. Most outlets want original content and sometimes they'll put them through Copyscape to figure that out. But we may be able to change 120 words or 150 words of the article. We may be able to change the headline. Maybe we change one tip and all of a sudden we've got a new piece of content again that, that can be repurposed and, and sent to another outlet. So, you know, when I was in PR, remember there were sort of a number of sort of taboo topics that we were always encouraged to just steer clear of. At the time, they were religion and gun control and abortion. Tobacco. Uh, yeah, stuff like that. And, um, you know, I, uh, mostly as a result of, I think probably the, the murder of George Floyd and having read pieces like the 1619 Project by Nicole Hannah-Smith and um, also having read works by Van Jones and uh, James Foreman Jr., you know, have really, really only in the last maybe three years woken up to systemic racism. Mm -hmm. You know, as a white person, I could easily just look the other way and not have to deal with it and just say, oh, there's no racism anymore. That's over. Right. But I've realized, you know, over the last three years that it's totally systemic and it, you know, runs through every part of our country right now. And it's a problem for everybody, I think. So, and I'm, I am an advocate of raising awareness for that. Good. And, uh, and I would, I like to do that. I'm not afraid to talk about it. I was at first, but mostly on this podcast, I, I, uh, right after the incident, I had a panel on racism and diversity. And I, and I said to one of the panelists when I was setting it up, I didn't want to moderate it because I, I don't, I don't, I was scared. And she said, no, 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 you have to moderate it. You're going to be the one to moderate it. And I did. And it's sort of woken, this whole thing has woken me up to it, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I see this interesting parallel between social media algorithms, which use these bubble filters to show us more of the same content and in so doing polarize us. And I think it's for the first time in my lifetime you know, I see white America polarized. Like I, if it was polarized before, I was never aware of it. Right. Now the left and the right are staunchly opposed. That's right. They really disagree on which direction we should go. And it's what's interesting to me, having woken up to racism, you know, the, the, my thought is, well, it's always been that way for people of color. Mm -hmm. You know, they've been living in an alternate reality forever. And so I, well, you're just starting to believe it or realize it and understand it at a different level. And look, it's a lot easier to talk about when you're on the right side of the argument, which in this case, I believe you are. I'm sure there are plenty of people who don't feel that way. Still some who may be able to make an intelligent argument about it will probably disagree with it. And then there are others who are just completely ignorant and, you're just better off not having the conversation with them because it's not in a, that, that's, that's the, along the lines of what you're saying, what I feel today is there are no more conversations. It's, it's, it's all arguments and it's about winning. Everybody has to win the argument. You know, sometimes it's okay. And I say this to my wife, I say this to my kids. Sometimes it's okay to agree to disagree as long as you can do it collegial, you know, collegially and, 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 you're, you're at least willing to listen to what the other person has to say. In the end, you may walk away and say, look, that guy just doesn't get it. 
Um, but if, there, if you can have a conversation and that it's not adversarial, that's where we need to get back to. Because I think that's what it used to be to a certain extent. I think there was definitely a blind eye that was turned and, and, and still is. I mean, it's definitely we're at, at a peak level right now, but there's still plenty of blind eyes turned to it for sure. Well, the byproduct of these, you know, social media algorithms is that, you know, for the first time, it's not just that we have differences of opinion on how to respond to the problems. We disagree on what the problems are. We disagree on the facts. You know, there, there is no more civic reality in the white community. And, and, and my point was, you know, with the black community or people of color, there's really never been a shared civic reality. They've always been living in this world of like, are you kidding me? How could you not know? But the truth is, you know, we, we haven't known. I mean, certainly, you know, Western education didn't really teach us about this. We've had to learn it on our own. In any event, I see a parallel between the digital social media algorithms and this situation of alternate realities between people of color and white people. And so I would like to write an op-ed about it, a hard-hitting op-ed about it. And... Um, Now's the time to do it because I have a book coming out. So would you advise me as my publicist to steer clear of that topic? Be honest. I, I would not advise you to steer clear of the topic because to me, it sounds like a topic that you're incredibly passionate about. Um, what I would say is that I don't believe you writing that. First of all, being very candid, I think it's going to be a very difficult op-ed for you to get placed. Who is Eric Schwartzman's to write to write about Eric Schwartzman to write about this? You're not a professor. You're not a PhD. You're not you're not a, a, someone of color. You're not in that field. So your your bio doesn't help you in this case. Okay. Second, it has absolutely nothing to do with your book. So I would not connect that article with book promotion in your case for your book because they're really not. They're, they really have one has nothing to do with the other, but I would tell you that if you're passionate enough about it, go ahead and try to write that op-ed uh, put and worst case, put it up on your website or somewhere so that you can put that piece out there. But along the lines, I, th I think more to what your question is, there are certainly uh, clients that I've worked with who may feel one way or the other, but do not want to bring in a political position one way or the other for fear of what that might mean. I, I'll give you a wonderful example. I worked with uh, an, art, an author recently who wrote his book under a pseudonym because he was afraid of, he had a hundred plus million dollar business. Um, a very reasonable guy, intelligent guy. Uh, the book was definitely uh, a right leaning book. It was not a pro Trump book, but it was a right leaning book. And he just did not, want to have his name connected to it, not because he wasn't passionate about the topic, but he was afraid of A, corporate backlash and, and losing clients because of it. B, he had children and he didn't want them to have to feel, and a wife, and he didn't want them to have to um, feel any backlash from it. So he, he wrote it under a pseudonym, um, you know, and I, I felt bad for him because the book was well done. And it was very articulate. Again, there were things in there that I might not agree with, but um, but I wasn't offended by what he wrote. And, and so it is a challenge these days. I mean, I think we are 
in some ways, self-limiting, you know, putting, you know, governors on ourselves because we don't want to isolate ourselves from potential clients, potential friends. I mean, look how many friendships have been ended just over the past four years over politics. It's, it's just outrageous how polarized we've become. You have to go along and get along That's right. to get ahead. That's what I tell my and kids. So, and so if, um, if, you know, your objective is to take care of yourself first, then, you know, you're not incentivized to up, be an upstander right. and talk about these things. You know, if on the other hand, you're willing to take a stand, you know, you look at somebody like Billie Holiday, who took a stand, you know, and knew her worth. Um, look at the price that she paid for that, you know, beyond just, you know, drugs and alcohol, but, you know, being a target of, of, of government. I mean, great. I don't know if you had a chance to watch the recent uh, Netflix movie, the, the trial of the Chicago seven, right. I did. Yeah. And, and what, what did Abby Hoffman say in there when they were, he was joking about, the price that he would pay to be able to, uh, I, I think, to demonstrate in Chicago, there they were, or $150,000 and he'd go away. And they said, you know, what's the price you would truly pay? And he said, my life, I would pay for it with my life. So it's, you know, it, it was a true uh, exhibit of his passion. What about politics? Because, you know, um, I know you haven't read my book, but I have a chapter in there on the laws of virality. Mm-hmm. And in that chapter, I do talk about the bubble filter algorithms, the social, political uh, dangers uh, of polarization and uh, this sort of what's been called by others a knowledge coup or epistemic coup uh, between the social networks, the intelligence community and elected officials who are allowed to lie with impunity uh, in exchange for not enforcing regulations on the um, social networks while the, uh, you know, intelligence agencies are starry-eyed that they, they have access to spy on anyone, anywhere, anytime. Um, so I do actually cover all that in the book. And I do actually talk about, you know, January 6th, the insurrection on Capitol Hill as sort of the culmination of, you know, social media, you know, un- unbridled social media gone wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I would also like to write an op-ed about that, mm-hmm. which would be a politically loaded uh, op-ed that would definitely isolate people on the far right. What mm-hmm. would you say to me there as my book publicist? I would tell you that if your, your feelings seem pretty strong about how you feel about the far right. So those are probably people that you're not wanting to work with anyway, would be my guess. And so I think you follow your passion there. The problem is, is that there's way too much attention being paid to the far right and way too much attention being paid to the far left. And people who might be slightly right of center are being painted as Nazis or this or that, you know, and, and, and people who are slightly left are, be, are you know, are, are being pushed too far left. That's the problem. And, and so everybody is being... Uh, pushed into a box that they don't necessarily belong. I mean, I'm, I sit right in the middle. I, I'm fiscally, you know, conservative and, and, you know, socially liberal. And, you know, so there are, there are, so if you say that, 
you know, at one point you voted Republican, well, then you're automatically a Trumper, you know, and, and it's just not the case. And so, again, we are living in a time where everybody wants to rush to judgment about you and, and they can. And, and then they can use a forum to, to talk about it. Let, let me ask you just a sort of a, a, a closing question on the mechanics of book PR. Yeah. So obviously, you know, publicists work non-exclusively for authors right. and, uh, you know, to set their table, they have a portfolio of clients. Right. How can you, what, what would you tell the author who says, you know, I want to, I want to be the, the one that gets the grease. What can an author do to get the highest level of service from a, a book PR uh, person who's juggling multiple accounts. I, I mean, it's, sadly, I suspect you say I'll pay you double or triple or whatever it is so that you don't have to spend your time on other accounts. I mean, look, I, in a perfect world, you know, I'll give you an example. When I ran the agency that I ran, everybody was overwhelmed. We would take, we take on every piece of business that would walk in the door. Um, we would have publicists working on, you know, 12 to 15 campaigns at any given time kind of spread all over the place. And it was a tough model and we still were successful and, and, you know, and did good work for people, you know, today under the model that I work on, we don't do that. You know, we, we don't overwhelm ourselves. I mean, uh, you know, we're in a position where we don't have to take every piece of business that walks in the door and it has to make sense for me. It has to make sense for the client, it has to make sense for my partners. So, you know, look, I think it's really important that you build a good relationship with your publicist because you want them to want to succeed on your behalf and not just look at you as a paycheck. Um, so I think it's a little bit of a delicate issue, but if you want more of their time, I think you have to pay for them for more of their time. I mean, you know, they've got to, They've got to earn their living as well. We're talking to book publicist David Ratner. And when we return, he's going to tell us how to hack the New York Times bestseller list. Stay with us. Act three, Google has an algorithm for determining search rankings and the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal have algorithms for determining bestsellers. In this act, we'll dive deep into reverse engineering those algorithms with our guest, publicist David Ratner. David, is it possible to buy a New York Times bestseller? It is. It is, and it's done often um, and has been for a while. Um, it's, it becomes more difficult um, each year as the Times, I think, does rightfully so, does a good job of trying to stay on top of how they manage their lists and create their lists, but uh, it, it does still exist. How does it work? How does the New York Times decide what is a bestseller? So in its simplest form, and it's not that simple anymore, and, and I'll be candid with you, I don't know the exact formulas anymore because they're changing, but bestseller lists typically are done on time-based algorithms. So 
if you sell X number of books in X period of time, that is what is counted towards lists. Okay. So for instance, uh, on Amazon, if you sell 25 books in an hour in a, on a randomish topic uh, in a particular category. So Am- Amazon has, you know, multiple categories. So you could be a leadership book that's in leadership. And then there's subcategories of management, sales management, all these different things. And if you are registered within those categories, which typically the publishers do, or if you're self-published, you can select those categories and you sell a certain amount of books in a certain period of time, your Amazon numbers are going to spike. And you'll, so if you look at books, it might say your total Amazon ranking is 50, you know, 59,000, but you're number three in leadership, number 27 in sales management and, and what have you. And it's all based on, on time-based algorithms. It's similar with the, you know, the, the bigger lists, right? It's ex- how many books do you sell in a given week to make those lists? But there's also a formula within that. So back in the day, an author could buy 10,000 copies of their own book uh, from, from a single retailer and it would count as 10,000 copies. And that might, that would be applied to your sales numbers. Today, you have to sell X number of books through uh, digital retailers, traditional retailers. They have to go to X number of zip codes and X number of uh, area codes to really make it seem like they are truly um, sales being uh, spread out throughout the country. Um, so again, if you go on Amazon and buy 500 copies of your book, it will not count as 500 copies towards any of these lists. So So if you went in with your credit card and you bought 500 copies and you plugged in 500 different addresses for the books to go out to, those would count as 500 individual sales. Even if it was the same credit card and the same buyer? As Pretty long much. as it's shipped to different different addresses? Correct. Yep, because you're paying a retail cost for it. And so, yep. And so um, are there services, PR services out there that sort of help you? Yes, yep. Perf- there, there, help you purchase books in this fashion? There, there are. there, and, and, you know, in some cases, their job is just to help the process, right? Where the sales are going to be completely legitimate sales and that it's just helping to orchestrate. So an author might have 15 or 20, you know, or five big speaking engagements coming up where they're selling in copies of the book as part of what they're doing. And so maybe they're speaking in front of 20,000 people over the course of these engagements. So they can, this particular, you know, these groups can work to make sure that those 20,000 books that are being sold in, are actually counted as individual sales. And truth be told, they are legitimate sales, right? They're part of a program. There are other times and other instances where the author, in order to hit their numbers, uh, has to buy the books themselves, have to buy the books themselves. And they may have to provide a list of names or, or, or lists are bought. And I don't know if you've ever had this happen, Eric, where a book just shows up at your house and with a release, but it does happen and, and it's because somebody, your name showed up on a list that was then sent out. And an author, so some authors could be buying 10,000 copies of their book, but they have to pay the retail price of it. So if their book is $25, they're spending you know, $250,000 on books to be distributed to these multiple area codes, these multiple zip codes um, to, to work towards that bestseller list. 
So if I've got three speaking gigs lined up yep. and I'm going to sell 20,000 books yep. uh, to the conference organizers in exchange for, you know, comping my speaking fee. Yep. Um, and I go to one of these outfits to orchestrate the sales. You're telling me they're going to, how are they possibly going to purchase each one? To, how do they because have they're, they're thousand to, different ways of buying it? They're going to get the names of the 20,000 people that are going to be getting copies of books. So they're going to work with those organizations and work to get those to act as individual sales. And again, I can't profess to tell you exactly how it's done because I don't work with, you know, in these organizations, but that's ex it's exactly how it is done. I mean, if you have the lists of names and the purchase and, and, and they're, they're purchased on a retail at a retail cost, you can't buy 20,000 at a discounted rate and distribute them that way. Um, they, they have to be done through retail channels. So um, appropriately through retail. So then if someone is self-published, uh, what, what I guess challenges do they, are, do they have in front of them in terms of being able to become a bestseller? So, well, it depends on what level bestseller. Um, the hardest one would be the times. But you can, there are- That is campaigns. the hardest one, right? Like that's yes. the best and, and, and one the most, to get. Yes, and, and, and the most prominent. But, but you can, so there are campaigns being done now for like the Wall Street Journal and USA Today that are done, and they're really more marketing campaigns than anything else, where um, an author will bring their book, their ebook price down to a very low price, 99 cents maybe. And some of these companies have databases of couple million people who have opted in to get information about specials that are running on eBooks and they feature the eBook as the book of the week. And they, and it's, it's shared with that massive opt in community. And inevitably in most cases, X number of people will download the book, even if they never read it because they're, they've opted in and say, Oh, this, they're recommending this book for 99 cents. I'll just pop it into my e-reader. And if you sell X number, you're going to make those lists. Not the Times. The Times doesn't count ebook sales. If a list has um, an email list has millions of, of subscribers, that's going to be a name brand list, right? I mean, people are going to know what that it's is. Sometimes it's accumulation of different lists, right? So some of these companies have relationships with these list companies, so they're able to pull together the top five, six, seven lists um, together in one versus just one singular list that exists. If someone wants to go after one of those people and try to hire them, who are they? Um, there's, you know, I'm not sure that I should say the names, but there are a couple of them out there. If, if you do your due diligence, you can find them. I don't know whether I'd be exposing something or not by giving the name. So I'd probably prefer not to do that. Could you tell um, us what, what a keyword to query on Google to find them? I, I would say how to create a Wall Street Journal bestseller campaign. I see. It's, it's, it. The information is not hard to find if you do a little due diligence you know, out there. What's the best way to go? Self-publishing or working with a major publisher? Well, if you can work with a major publisher, that's always a nice avenue to go down. Uh, getting a book deal with a major publisher is, is very difficult today, right? So... They're really looking for people with platforms in place that can help drive book sales as well. So it's a very interesting time. There are a lot of authors, uh, 
I'm going to talk about the business space, the nonfiction space a little bit more because I know that better. I don't spend a lot of time working in fiction, which is a very different animal. Um, but if I'm someone with business books in the end, the sales and the Michael Lewis is aside, right? Who's a, a big A-list author and who writes in the business space. But if you're writing about leadership, management, digital transformation, strategy, uh, diversity and inclusion, HR and training, all of these different things, you know, if it, it's going to fall on you to sell the books, right? The impetus, that's why I have so many clients. It's not the publishers hiring me. It's the authors hiring me because the publishers just don't spend a lot of time doing the publicity work. And so if you're someone who knows that you can sell a lot of books on your own, why not work either self-publish or work? There's a lot of what I call what are hybrid publishers who do a great job where your royalty rate is going to be significantly higher and you can make a lot more money on your books than if you sell them through a traditional publisher. If you're you also, if you self-publish or a hybrid publisher, you have significantly more control of the entire process. You still own your content, okay? You can do it at a pace that you want it to. And you just have, so like in these hybrid publishers, and I work with a number of them, there's some really great ones out there. They act like a traditional publisher. They provide all of the distribution services and the editorial services and, and the design services and all those kinds of things. And they get you set up with Barnes and Noble and, 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 and Amazon and Kobo and all these other outlets. And they actually do some uh, optimization with those sites, those kinds of things. But you're paying a fee to do that. But you're also a client. And so you're going to get much more resp better response rates and you have a lot more control than if you work with a publisher who you're kind of at their whim, like, oh, well, we need to push your book back three months. I don't want to push my book back three months. Well, we have to push your book back three months. You, you, you don't have that much. You might love chapter 14 in your book. They might not and say, we're taking chapter 14 out. We don't think this is really what we want to be doing. And so it just depends. If you can get a an A-list publisher on board, the Simons, the Harpers, the Randoms, the Hachettes, you know, places like that on board, and they are supportive of your book. If, you, if you've gotten a nice advance and they're supportive of your book, they're going to do a really nice job for you. If you are a small fish in a big pond, it's it's a little bit harder. So it, it really, it, it, it depends. Uh, but today there's so much more uh, there are so many more options in self-publishing and hybrid publishing and so much more control of speed and content and ownership and all those things. That's why you're seeing, you know, a huge number of people moving in that direction. It's why you've seen over the past couple of years, some major publishers like Simon and others who have self-publishing arms because they know there's a lot of revenue to be made there. Um, talk to us for a moment, if you would, about this sort of growing area of audiobooks. Um, you know, I'd like to know, one, particularly for nonfiction art, uh, authors who are writing about an area in which they specialize, um, you know, one, do you think it's important to record an audiobook? Two, what is the role of an audiobook in a PR campaign? And three, what kind of sales uh, should authors expect for uh, audiobooks versus ebooks or uh print books. So I think it's a nice thing to have an, look, 
in an ideal world, you have your book available in every format. So you've got a printed version, you've got a digital version, and you've got an audio version. So I think that's um, a, a nice thing to have. How they're used in publicity, they're not really. We don't really, we just can let people know that it's available in audio, but we don't really promote it. The fact that there is an audio book, that's not a big differentiator. So it's not really um, a critical factor. And sales, like everything else, is completely subjective. Um, you know, I, I would say in the uh, in the rankings of you know print, digital, and audio, audio probably still is third. But there are, there are people who absolutely love them, uh, and and so I do think it's great. And then in terms of audiobooks, you got lots of choices, right? You can record your own audiobook, or you can hire a company to do it. Um, it's not. Um, prohibitive, you know, depending on how long your book is. I mean, you can get a nice audio book done and distributed, you know, for less than $2,000 with certain companies, you know, it depends. It really depends on page count and, you know, how many words and that sort of thing. But um, there's a lot of options in, in the audio space. David, I sure appreciate you taking the time to bring us up to speed on uh, your experience in book PR. It's uh, just sure. fascinating. Sure. I appreciate it. I really enjoyed being here. And if anyone in your audience ever wants to talk, they can find me at ratnerpr.com. Um, and, you know, if I don't have the answers to your questions, oftentimes I can point you in the right direction to get them. Awesome. Um, and for those of you listening, if you'd like to support this podcast, you can do it by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Um, and if you'd like a free copy of my new book, the Digital Pivot, Secrets of Online Marketing with a forward by New York Times bestselling author, David Pogue. Here's how you can get one. Um, you can get a free copy of The Digital Pivot, Secrets of Online Marketing by rating and reviewing this podcast on Apple Podcasts. Cool. That's how easy it is. So all you have to do is go to earnedmediapodcast.com and give this podcast a star rating and write a comment about what you think of the show. Next, take a screenshot of your review, share it on Twitter. But when you share it on Twitter, be sure to include my Twitter ID at Eric Schwartzman and the hashtag Digital Pivot Book as one word in the body of your tweet. And lastly, make sure to follow me. And in exchange for your feedback, I'll DM you a link where you can download a free copy of my new book, The Digital Pivot Secrets of Online Marketing. And the book explains in simple language how to successfully move your business or your career online. Um, and David, give us give us your website, your contact information. If yep. someone wants to get a hold of you, what's the yep. best way to do it? Easy enough. Website is uh, ratnerpr.com, R-A-T-N-E-R-P-R.com. And um, you can reach me, uh, David, at ratnerpr.com. PR.com. Easy enough to find and uh, happy to talk to you anytime. For more on how you can earn influence through earned media, get the Digital Pivot audiobook at digitalpivotbook.com.